Good morning. Merry Christmas to you all. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, we're going to look at 46 to 55, the Magnificat, which is Mary's response to when the angel Gabriel came and told her that she would give birth to the Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for Advent that prepares our hearts for what happened 2,000 years ago when your son, fully God, also took on full humanity. The incarnation, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, fully Savior, for all who believe and receive your son by faith as a forgiver of sin and the guarantee of eternal life. Father, throughout this Christmas season, we ask that you would lift up our hearts, that we would be filled with joy and thanksgiving for what you've done for us, that you've remembered us in our fallen sinful state and provided a means of forgiveness and cleansing an eternal life in heaven. Lord God, guide us as we look at the Magnificat. To the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. There are many sights in Israel that I love to see, but one of my favorites is the Basilica of the Annunciation. The Basilica of the Annunciation is actually a modern church built in 1969. It's up north. It's in Nazareth. You don't go there because it's a modern church. In fact, honestly, I only take about half of the tours I lead to Israel there because it's a half hour there and a half hour back. And let's be honest, who goes to Israel to see a 1969 church? But over that church or under it actually, are several ruins. There's a Byzantine, 4th century Greek church, the precursor to the Greek Orthodox Church. It's a Christian church, and some of the ruins are still there. There's also an 11th and 12th century Crusader church underneath. Small amounts of ruins. And then you get to see a small grotto, they use the word a little different than we would, that refers to a hamlet, a small little uh, house as part of the village of Nazareth. Many believe it to be Mary's childhood house with probably reasonable historical uh, verification of that. But the ruins themselves are so small that sometimes it doesn't warrant going a half hour there and a half hour back. But honestly, the ruins are not why I go. If I go to the church of the Annunciation, the Basilica, it's because of some modern art that is within it. This church, again, the Annunciation, it's Gabriel telling Mary that she will bring forth the child, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. So the child to be born is the Son of God. And inside this church 
is a number of pieces of modern art from 43 different countries representing their depiction of Mary. I think it has more depictions of Mary than anywhere else in the world. They're displayed kind of like what you see in the background. I'm going to show you a few of the pieces. The first is not from a country. It's actually from Nazareth itself. This is one of the pictures, the depictions of Mary. The next is from Bolivia. Remember, there's 43 countries. Some countries have multiple presentations. I'm not going to show them all to you today. The next is beloved by us, the Dominican Republic. In fact, we have a mission trip going there in January that you'll want to lift up in prayer. Uh, China is another one. Then we go back to Europe on the island. We have Wales and Scotland. Going back to Asia, we have Korea, South Korea, as you would imagine. Going back to Europe, we have Spain. And then Asia, Thailand. We have a mission trip in June and July going to South Africa. So I included that. You'll want to pray for them in the summer. The Republic of San Marino. And then you'll want to know the picture the United States sent. Really not our best art, if you ask me. And then one more, India broke the rules and actually gave us a statue rather than something on the wall. All of these are about Mary. And the scriptures tell us that Mary is blessed of women. Now we need a balance when it comes to understanding Mary. I think many Protestants perhaps have underestimated God's blessing on Mary's life. We forget passages like what Paul said. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't think that's just for Paul. I think that would be for Mary. Mary is a humble servant who lived rightly before the Lord, was chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. She is well worth imitation as she imitates Christ. On the other hand, however, we don't want to worship Mary. We don't want to elevate her to co-redemptress. We don't believe that she is our intercessor or mediator. These are heresies that have made their way into the church. For instance, from the Council of Trent, in 1546, Mary was elevated so that we read something very much like this. As mother of all men, that's interesting, that's actually Eve, not Mary. As mother of all men, Mary knows the spiritual needs of all men, knows all that concerns their salvation. Because of her immense charity, she prays for them. And since she is all-powerful with her son Jesus, this is not scripture, this is not true. Because of the love by which they are united, she obtains from him all the graces for which she asks, that is to say, all the graces that we receive. And so some have quite erroneously taught that Mary is co-redemptress, she's our intercessor, she's our mediator, that if you would pray to Mary, her son would be unable to refuse her because the son will do all that the mother bids. Yet listen to what Scripture says about a mediator. 
I want to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, the fifth verse. It says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, not two, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus alone is our mediator. So we want to find a balance between imitating Mary as she imitates Christ, honoring her as one who is blessed by God to bear the Messiah, and yet never elevating her to co-redemptress or praying or intercessing to Mary that she might pray to her son because that is outside what Scripture bids. Let's read about Mary. In fact, what we're actually going to read are the words of Mary. We call it the Magnificat. This is her response when she learns that the Holy Spirit comes upon her. The power of the Most High overshadows her. So the child to be born is called the Holy One, the Son of God. This is her godly response. And Mary said, Luke 1, 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. As you and I begin to look at the Magnificat, the response of Mary, we're going to make three introductory remarks, A, B, and C. A, I want us to notice that it is all about exalting God, crescendoing God, worshiping God. I love the way it starts in Latin. That's what Magnificat means. It, it's the Latin word, the first word in the Vulgate, translated by Jerome in 404. The first word in Greek is megaluno. Both of them start with the word mega, and we understand the word mega because we have mega base, right? Or perhaps in years past when the word was a little more popular, some teens might say, hanging around with Pastor Steve or Pastor Jared, they're mega cool. What they would say when they're around me is that he's a mega average. A mega means to swell, to crescendo, to worship, to exalt. And that's what Mary does. She doesn't exalt herself. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Sometimes we get this wrong and we magnify Mary or we magnify a person. But her response to what God has done is to magnify the Lord. I realize this is the third week in a row that we've said this. But the chief end, the chief goal of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him to forever. And that's what it means to magnify. We want to think Great thoughts of God. 
And as we go through our days, we think great thoughts of God and it elevates our life and it corrects our behavior and it shapes our mind and our thoughts and our attitudes. And we've got to ask ourselves during this Advent season, the season that can become too busy, are we magnifying God or is our focus on the Lord? Are we exalting God? Is it a crescendo from our heart to worship God? Let's not rush through the season without remembering it's all about our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's God becoming man, the incarnation. And think about that. In our lowliest state of sin, He came for us. He came to save us through faith in Him. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That ought to be the cry of our heart. That's what magnificat means. To swell, to exalt, to praise God. And it needs to be true in my life. And it needs to be true in yours. The second introductory observation is this, B. You'll notice that Mary strings together a number of Old Testament texts. If you look at your Bible, you'll see that she takes a number of fragments from the Old Testament. She strings them together. We call that a string of pearls. That's what it's theologically called when a number of Old Testament texts are all put together in a cogent, uh, biblically sensitive way. Let me state the obvious. Mary is 12, maybe 13 years old. She's rather young at this point. We know this because at age 13, girls her age would generally be married, as would guys. That was their culture, their time period, quite different than ours. She is a young girl. She is a peasant girl. She has absolutely no access to theological scrolls. She certainly has never owned one, probably has never touched one, doesn't have access to the Bible, and yet from memory, she has strung a number of Old Testament texts together without ignoring their context. She gets the context right in every way, and it's cogent. That speaks to a young girl who loves the Lord, loves his word, has been in the synagogue, has memorized scripture, has had none of the advantages that you and I have. Most of us own at least one, if not more, copies of scripture. And from memory, because she's so thankful for who God is and what he has done, she praises him using God's word. She understands the centrality of the texts in her life. And she has memorized the centrality of the text so that God's word would be a light unto her path, a lamp unto her, or her life, and she lives for the Lord. See, the third thing that's very interesting about this canticle song is that it seems to ignore tenses. Let me put it a different way. Mary goes from past tense to present tense to future tense as though the tense doesn't exist at all. 
So in verse 46, it's past tense. In 47, in the first part of 48, it's present tense. In the last part of 48, it's future tense. And Mary ignores all the tenses. It's as though she believes that all of Scripture, regardless of whether it is past or present or future, applies to her life. She gives us a hermeneutical principle that we ought to apply to our life. She looks at the past and removes the principles and applies it to the present. She looks at the present, removes the principles and applies it to the present. She looks at the future. She removes the principles and applies it to the present. In other words, she believes that all of Scripture applies to her life. And not only does it apply to her life, it applies to mine. So three introductory remarks, A, B, C. Now let's look at the text proper. We're going to make four observations from it. The first is why Mary worships God. In fact, all four are why she worships God. The first is because he's a mighty God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Verses 49 and 51. He takes a virgin a woman who has not been with a man, and she brings forth, or he brings forth in her a child. And not just any child, the God-man, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, he is capable of doing all things. This is great news for Mary. It's great news for you. It's great news for me. No matter who is leading our country, no matter who is leading our world, no matter who is in office or not, God is on the throne. God is in control. He's all-powerful. If we have illness, or we have financial difficulties, or we have trials in our life, or we have a big decision to make in the future, or we're facing something of difficulty, if we walk side by side with the Lord, we walk with one who is in control. If we have a wayward child or grandchild, God is still in control and God is able to exercise that control. God in every way is great. In fact, we see in verse 51 that God's greatness is so great that sometimes when we say so-and-so is great, it might be true compared to man, but it's not true compared to the Lord. Worse, from time to time, we get the idea that we're great, that we have the swelled head. And God says in the text that he brings the mighty low. He brings the ruler low. The one who thinks they're great compared to the Lord, he brings humility into one's life. In this regard, I think of Herod. Now, at this point, you're probably confused, and, and rightly so, because you would say, which Herod? There's five of them in the New Testament. You know, Herod's a family name. It's kind of like Heinz. If I say there's a Heinz in the room, you don't know if it's Betty Ann, who is actually in the room, or if Isaiah is here, or Kalina, or Sandy. Well, she's no longer a Heinz. She's a Barnhart. I'm happy about the marriage. Don't really like that she lost my name. 
or Hannah's in the room. Hines is a family name. Well, Herod is a family name. There's five of them. There's Herod of Matthew chapter 2. He's Herod the Great. This is the Herod that makes his way into the Christmas accounts because he's the Herod that wanted to murder all the boys under the age of two to take out Christ. He is called Herod the Great. He's called Herod the Builder. If you go to Israel, he's the one that built everything you see. So you go to Caesarea Maritima or Maritime, he built that port city. You go to Masada down south, that's one of his palaces. He never actually went there, but he built it in case Cleopatra and Mark Antony ever attacked him. He built the Herodian five miles south of Bethlehem, which is where he was buried. He expanded the Temple Mountain 20 BC. He's Herod the Builder. He's Matthew chapter 2. There's Herod Archelaus. He's also Matthew chapter 2. That's confusing. You got two Herods in the same chapter. This is the second Herod, and he's the Herod that's there when Mary and Joseph flee to Nazareth. Then you have Herod who's called the fox. Herod uh, Antipas. He's the Herod of Mark chapter 6. He's the guy that watched Salome dance and offered up to half of his kingdom. And she said, what I really want is John the Baptist's head on a platter. Uh, this is also... Uh, the Herod of which Jesus had a trial in front of in Luke 23. Then there's the fifth Herod, Herod Agrippa II. He's the Herod of Acts 25 and 26 that Paul had his trial before. And the Herod I want to get to is Herod Agrippa IV. He's from Acts 12. You remember him. He was filled with pride. He came one day dressed in a silver outfit. It was a sunny day, and because the sun hit the silver, it glittered all over. And then he began to give a speech, and the people were trying to butter him up. And they said, the voice of a God, not of a man. And he didn't stop them. And over and over again, the voice of a God, not of a man. And you remember verse 23, because he did not give honor to God, an angel of the Lord struck him dead. And he was eaten by worms. Not very pleasant. But what Mary understands, what Herod did not understand, is that God alone is great. We might say an athlete is great, or a musician is great, or an intellect is great, compared to other humans. But compared to God, there is only one great. He alone is great. Her heart crescendoed, it magnified the Lord because he alone is great. And again, I've got to step back and ask, is that my view of God? As I mentioned the last couple weeks, I had a friend that often prayed, Lord, allow me to grow in humility lest you need to humble me. The first reason that Mary magnifies God is he is all-powerful. He truly is great. The second reason she worships God, she magnifies him, is not only that he is great, but he is holy. Holy means otherly. It means set apart. She recognizes that he alone is holy. 
he is a holy God. She says in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. This attribute, the holiness of God, is the only attribute of God lifted to the third degree in all of Scripture. So we see in Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We see in Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He's not only all-powerful, but he's all-holy. He will only do what is right and what is good. And we'll see in a moment what is merciful. Sometimes when I go to the hospital to visit people, I read from Psalm 62, 11 and 12. I have it on PowerPoint in the ESV, but I'm actually going to read it the way I learned it in another verse. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that all power belongs to God, and not only all power, but steadfast love or mercy. Hasid. God is a kind God. He's not only all-powerful, but he always does what is right, and he always does what is merciful. And that's the third reason Mary worships God. He is a merciful God. His mercy is from generation to generation, verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Think about that. It's those who fear God, those who have a reverential awe for God, that God demonstrates His mercy. If we want God's mercy in our life, we need a reverential awe for the Lord. Let me tell you what a reverential awe is not. A reverential awe is not saying to a four-year-old boy, stop running in the church halls. I don't care. I, you know, I like the kids running. You may not. But that's not reverential awe. It's just not. Reverential awe is a view towards the greatness of God. Reverential awe is a life of worship. Reverential awe keeps us from doing what we know is sinful because we want to worship this God. Reverential awe is thinking great thoughts about God. Reverential awe is being in the Word and allowing the Word to change us. Reverential awe is praying moment by moment. It's sending up little sentence prayers and keeping God as the focus of one's life. It's really not about whether you wear your Sunday best or you have the right version of Scripture, or if you walk in the right way through the halls, or if your children can sit perfectly instead of coloring, it, that's not really reverential awe. Reverential awe is a heart attitude towards God. And the Bible says that when we have that heart attitude, God will extend mercy to us. And so we want God's mercy. A big part of it is how we view him 
how we think about him, how we obey him, how we love him, how our heart crescendos, how it magnifies about this great God. And notice that his mercy extends from generation to generation. I don't exactly know what that means, but I know it means this much. Parents, grandparents, the reverential awe by which you and I live has residual positive effects on God's mercy to the next and the next and the next generation. It means at least that, probably much more. And so if we want to have effect, spiritual effect on our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, Part of that is a reverential awe that we share towards the Lord and then in turn God shows mercy to us and to the generations to come. No wonder Mary magnifies the Lord. Finally and appropriately, she magnifies God because God is a promise keeper. Let me read verses 54 and 5 again. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, this is one of those instances where Mary seems to link the past and the present and the future. She goes back to Abram, who becomes the father of all nations, Abraham, or many nations, whose offspring are going to be numbered like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, and from whom will come the offspring, the Messiah. And so she links Genesis chapter 12 and 15 with what still hasn't occurred, the birth of her son, the Messiah, and she treats it as though all of it is happening simultaneously, which in fact it is. She sees the Old Testament as relevant to her life. She sees future events as relative to her life or relevant for her life. She sees all of Scripture as relevant. She also believes that if God makes a promise, even if it has not yet occurred, she can speak of it in the present tense even though it's a future event, which she does about the birth of her son. It hasn't yet occurred, yet she speaks of it as though It has already happened because God has promised. And when God speaks, reality comes forth. Let me conclude with just uh, four review points from the Magnificat of Mary. First, we don't ever want to pray to Mary. She's not an intercessor. She's not a mediator. She's not a co-redemptress. Look at verse 47. She rejoices in God, my Savior. She needs a Savior. So do you. We don't pray to Mary. We pray to the God that Mary prays to, the one true God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Second, Mary was a woman of God's word. I'm, I marvel at this. How does a 12 or 13-year-old take a number of scattered Old Testament texts, get them right within their context, 
make them a cogent theological prayer, and yet she doesn't have access to hold the scriptures like you and me. Could we do what Mary did in a canticle of prayer without picking up our Bible, which is what Mary did? She's a woman of the centrality of the word. May that be true of your life and of mine. Third, Mary's confidence in God is so great that whether it's in the past or the future, she believes that it speaks to the present. That's how I want to treat God's word as well. And finally, she is in awe of the fact that God is all-powerful He is holy, and he's merciful. And when she honors God, his mercy extends from generation to generation. That's the Magnificat. And it's what she responds to God with when she learns that she is going to bear the Messiah, the one we'll talk about on Christmas Eve and on Christmas morn. Let's pray. Father God, it is quite amazing that Mary had this command of Scripture and that she was such a humble servant and knowing that she would face all sorts of abuse, she would be willing to say, may it be to me as you have said. And she blessed you for the virgin birth. Father, may we imitate her as she imitates her son. And Father, may our hearts swell. May they crescendo with worship because you are worthy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.